this is a guy who, for all intents and purposes, was a pretty quiet, antisocial, just not good with people kind of guy, working in a modest job, living in a modest flat, and then he murdered four young lads. When ordinary citizens who aren't, you know, journalists or police officers, when, when these people spot things like this and people who are trained to do so do not, there's a problem. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was a loner and a misfit who lived with his parents until his early 30s, but went on to become a serial killer who stalked his victims on dating apps and gay hookup sites. But Stephen Port was no cunning killer, and when he was tried for four murders in the Old Bailey in London, the failings of police in their investigations into mysterious deaths in the Barking area was as stark as his horrific legacy of crimes. Today, I'm talking to author Sebastian Murphy-Bates, whose book Easy Kills traces the story of Stephen Port and how police missed the blatant murders of gay men. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Sebastian, just explain to us, because we don't actually have this in Ireland, um, and really we should, but what is a life sentence with a whole life order? Yeah, so a a whole life order is essentially reserved for the worst criminals uh, in, uh, in the UK, in England. It's basically where the the judge could apply a very strict sentence, you know, a life sentence, which is, you know, could be anything from 15 to 25 years. But he he or she decides to impose a whole life order, which means the defendant will die in prison. And those were the words that were spoken to Stephen Port at the Old Bailey when I was uh, reporting on his trial. The judge said, you will die in prison. There's no chance of you coming out. It's completely off the table. So that that's how yeah. dangerous a man Stephen Port is. He's he's in the, he's in the sort of top echelons of uh, scumbags, basically, along with people like Rose West. Yeah, and Jeremy Bamber, who um, yeah. you know, actually, if you look through the list of uh, those with whole life orders in the UK, you could probably then apply yourself to Netflix or Sky and find a documentary on each one of them, because Absolutely. it seems yeah. that each of them have this like incredible story. So Stephen Port, he's now 46 years of age and he's serving this forevermore sentence in prison. Um, but he he's a late offender, Sebastian. He's not kind of, or certainly from what we know of or what you know of, um, and what you've detailed in your book, Easy Kills, he isn't somebody that has kind of moved into criminality and this kind of criminality, serial killing, um, in a slow fashion. It sort of happens very quickly and very late in life. Yeah, it's very strange that. Um, to be fair, with, with Stephen Port, his family won't, uh, for obvious reasons, talk a lot about him because they're very embarrassed about what's happened. But what we do know about his uh, criminal history, other, other than drug taking, is that his criminal history started as far as we know in about 2012 when he was uh, he was accused of sexual assault and later found guilty of it during his trial in 2016 for the murders. But yeah, this is a guy who, for all intents and purposes, was a pretty quiet, antisocial, just not good with people kind of guy. 
working in a modest job, living in a modest flat, and then he murdered four young lads. It turned out that he'd raped others, he'd sexually assaulted others, and he'd drugged people. And what seems to have happened here is that at some point he became very heavily involved in taking drugs such as crystal meth, and he became fixated on the idea of raping unconscious younger men. He had a preference for younger men anyway, uh, what, what what's known in the gay community as twinks, but he he descended into this kind of vortex that became a compulsion where he, he had to rape and murder people. He, well, he had to rape them, sorry, and they died as a result of him drugging them in order to rape them. But it, yeah, it was, it was a real sexual obsession, a, a very dark one at that. And when you say 2012, so we're talking about 10 years ago, mm. um, you know, he did live at home until his early 30s. So something, obviously, unless there's further investigations going back into his past, but something to do with that family life, that stability of the home with the, the mother and father must have kept something at bay, perhaps. His family life, as far as I can tell, was was kind of odd to ev- to everyone from the outside, but we don't know the exact details as to why. It's, it's sort of an untapped area. I actually tried to speak mm. to his parents, um, and his dad basically told me to go away on the doorstep, and it was very awkward. But as what I've sort of gathered from people who knew uh, Stephen at school and who knew Stephen later in life is that when he was a kid, he was very... Very quiet, so quiet, in fact, that people thought he assumed that he was deaf. They called him the deaf kid at school. He was always seen with his mother sort of hiding behind her, even though he was quite a, a gangly child. We know that he was quite disobedient as a kid as well. We know that his dad would say, uh, you know, don't do that, Stephen. And he would say, no, no, dad, I won't. And then like later on, he would find Stephen doing whatever the prohibited acts was. That was sounds a bit like myself. Yeah, well, these are these are the, these are things that uh, could be said about me. You know, I, I'm I'm a mummy's boy. Um, I'm yes. sure at, so, at some at some points in my childhood, you know, I I did something I shouldn't have done when I was told not to. But with Stephen Port, it's it's difficult not to see these things as some sort of clue as to his personality, especially when you consider the fact that this was a guy who was who was incredibly shy, incredibly lonely. He wouldn't be able to just go on a date with somebody. This was a guy who had to lure people to his flat, sometimes with a false picture on a dating website. He would get them around. And when when you know that about him and you know that he wanted to surreptitiously give people drugs, these are all things whereby it's like he he didn't have he didn't have the the guts to say to somebody straight up, We're going to do this tonight, in the same way that he didn't have the guts to say to his dad, No, I am gonna do that. He'd sneak off and do it. And he snuck mm-hmm. men into his flat. And, and and then snuck drugs into their system without their consent. So there, there's definitely something there about his, his home life, yeah. And had he had he um, come out as gay, Sebastian, when he was living at home, or was that something that happened later in his life when he's hitting his thirties and moves out into this flat to live on his own? I, be, I believe he came out in his mid twenties. His mum was pretty old school, um, and his dad was as well. Apparently, his mother. Uh, Sharon, Stephen's sister, said that their mother wasn't particularly happy about it. But mm. it didn't seem to sever their relationship in any way. You know, they helped him get his flat in Cook Street in Barking, which he moved into, and that's where the murders occurred. But yeah, he seems to have been somebody who came out a little bit later than, than I would expect. You sort of expect people mm. to come out when they're coming of age, don't you? You know, when they 
first learn things about Well, themselves. I suppose nowadays things are different and there's, yeah, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, it's a much more open society and yeah. they're feeling more comfortable even, people are feeling more comfortable even as young teens. But mm. um, he trained or tried to do some studies in arts, but ended up working as a chef in a, in a yeah. pub. And now we get on to the interesting part, really, and, you know, which formulated or became your your book. This sort of socially awkward chef who wore a blonde toupee on his head and um, lived alone in a flat started going online and picking up guys. Um, in 2012, you say, he picked up a, a conviction for, was it a sexual assault? So in, in we we know that he sexually assaulted somebody in 2012. Right. Uh, he was not convicted of it at the time, which is why he was not on the police's radar. Um, mm. And he was able to murder Anthony Walgate and then continue. Okay, so that's 2012. So that's two years before um, Anthony Walgate. And maybe we'll start with that. What happened in June of 2014? Anthony Walgate was a student from uh, Hull up north, and he was at Middlesex University studying fashion. He basically was working part-time as an escort to supplement uh, his his finances. Anyone who moves from the north to London knows that London is incredibly expensive and difficult to keep up with. So he was he was doing a little bit of escort work on the side. It wasn't a full-time thing. And he was trying to be really careful about it. You know, he, he made contact with this guy who he thought was called Joe Dean. Joe Dean offered him £800 for one night, which to a student is pretty irresistible. Mm. So he tells his friends, look, I'm going around to this guy's house. It's in this area. It's in Barking, everything else. He texts them the location saying, in case I get killed. Um, and then he goes into into the flat with Stephen to meet him and he turns up dead outside his flat the next day. Now, when he, tur- he, he, tur- when he turns up dead, Stephen actually is the person who calls uh, 999 and he gives them some fake story about how he's a passerby and he's concerned about a lad who looks like he's had a fit or a seizure or he, he might just be drunk or something. The paramedics then arrive and it's clear that Anthony's been moved. His his upper his his clothing is sort of riding up over his midriff, I believe. He's got bruises on his torso and his arms. Classic signs of being dragged. He's outside somebody's flat who he's just stayed over to have sex with. The police decide not to investigate. They don't think it's suspicious. At some point, they figure out that the guy who called nine 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 hired him as an escort. Now, at that point, you would think, okay, so this lad has died as the result of as the result of a GHB overdose. GHB is commonly associated with date rape, so much so that it's it's commonly referred to as a date rape drug. Right? This guy is dead. Is it outside. used for anything else? You know, I yeah. mean, I should know that, but you know, no, it, it is. It, it, it is. I know. I know people um, who who take GHB for a laugh. Um, it's, right. it's 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 known as liquid ecstasy. In, uh, in in sort of the clubbing scenes and that it's um, apparently it gives you some sort of feeling of euphoria. I mean, taking it to me has always just seemed insane because it, in my head it's just associated with being completely out of control and and, and date rape. But absolutely, these were, th- this was the drug that was found in Anthony Walgate's system, and the police instead of looking at this, you know, the suspicious nature of the body, the drug which he has ingested, 
the fact that he's been hired for sex the night before and is now dead outside that flat and they just went, well, we'll do you for perverting the course of justice because you've lied to the police. Now, if you if you as a police officer are looking at a man and saying, you have lied to us, so you're, you're a criminal straight away, you've lied to the police about something very serious, would it not occur to you that this person is also capable of murder? Would it not occur to you that that is why that young man is dead outside the flat? Apparently it didn't. So at that point, um, this death was sort of filed away as accidental overdose. Um, no further inquiries were made. Stephen uh, had given a false name, I presume, to the 999 and had given a false story. So he was done a little bit for perverting the course of justice, but nothing serious. Everybody got a bit of a rap in the knuckles. And Anthony Walgate's death was parked. Yeah. So, so the, the key, the key thing with uh, the pervert in the course of justice conviction, which I thought was really well addressed actually in the Four Lives BBC drama uh, that recently came out about this, the thing about that was, pervert in the course of justice is not seen as a huge deal. It's it's not a priority like murder or rape or something like that. So he was free while he was waiting for his court case, and that's when he murdered Gabriel Cavari and Daniel Whitworth. He, he should have been arrested on suspicion of murder straight away. At that point, he would have been remanded in custody because of the seriousness of the offence and he wouldn't have been able to kill Gabriel. He wouldn't have been able to kill Daniel. Indeed. I mean, before they would have come to arresting him, they would have had to launch a murder inquiry, which they never did because they filed the death as essentially accidental. They said it was non-suspicious. They kept on saying it was non-suspicious. They said it's the Barking and Dagenham Post. They said it's a pink news. They just kept on coming out with this line while my colleagues were sat there going, are you joking? Right. Now, in August 2014, and I suppose we'll go through each of these individual cases and, you know, um, so we come on to the next victim and um, in August 2014, can you tell me what happened to 22-year-old Gabriel Kavari? Yeah, sure. Gabriel Kavari was a Slovakian lad who had moved to London because... London has a very cosmopolitan reputation. He was a young gay guy. He thought he might find more acceptance here. So, you know, he he, he came to London. He moved in with a guy called John Pape in uh, South London, I believe. He then announced very abruptly that he was leaving. Uh, he was going to live with Stephen Port. He was going to live on his sofa. As soon as he got to the flat, Stephen was texting his friend, uh, Ryan Edwards, saying, come round and see my new twink. Ryan went round to meet Gabriel and Gabriel told him, look, Stephen's not the man you think he is. He's terrifying. Um, he, he wants me to sleep in bed with him. He doesn't take no for an answer and all this stuff. Gabriel then disappears and Ryan says, you know, where's, where's, where's Gabriel? Like, is Gabriel okay? Stephen then starts feeding Ryan a web of lies saying, uh, you know, he, he's, he, or he, he just left. He just left. Meanwhile, he's contacting people who know Gabriel abroad saying uh, just just telling them lies about how he, how he's disappeared so he's he's weaving this very unsophisticated very transparent very stupid alibi uh, which he was only able to spin because he wasn't in prison on suspicion of murder mm. anyway so when gabriel's body is found it is found roughly 400 yards from stephen's flat in a churchyard called saint margaret's in barking east london so his body is found there it's almost identical, other than the precise location, to the death of Anthony Walgate. 
it's a drug overdose. He's been dumped in a public place. His clothes are pulled up. Just like Anthony, he's, uh, his, his mobile phone is, is missing. So straight away, if you're a copper, you're looking at that going, this reminds me of something. And we've got a guy uh, on, on suspicion of perverting the course of justice. Could it maybe be him? This question never crossed their minds. And that's then what led to the death of Daniel Whitworth. So Daniel Whitworth turned up literally a few weeks later. It was, I think it was within three weeks of each other because I remember covering the inquest. And mm. Daniel turns up. So Daniel was a, a chef from Gravesend who was living with his boyfriend, Ricky Wormsley. And he decided to meet up with Stephen for sex. So he went round to Stephen's flat and turns up dead in the same graveyard. Now, the key thing with Daniel Whitworth is that he was found with a plastic wallet in, I believe, his left hand in this graveyard, right? In the plastic wallet was a purported suicide note. The suicide note was incredibly imprecise. It didn't mention any of his family by name. It said very strange things such as, I've dropped my phone a little bit. Uh, like, like I dropped my phone a bit ago and I'm feeling drowsy. hope you can read this. It, it reads as though it's written by somebody who's trying to convince you that they're having a drug overdose and killing themselves. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of it, the absolute gem of this idiotic attempt at an alibi, which worked for some reason, was the sentence, P.S., please do not blame the guy I was with last night. He knows nothing of what I have done. Who's the guy last night? Why does somebody really, really want the cops to find this letter? So much so they preserved it in a plastic wallet and put it in his hand as opposed to stuffed it in his pocket. And why is somebody trying to clear someone else? Why, why has any of this happened? Why, 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 is, why is a young man who is so desperate to kill himself because he supposedly killed Gabriel Cavari, which was Stephen's attempt to get out of that murder as well, why in his throes of desperation... And guilt, is he making a priority of clearing some random bloke he was with last night of any suspicion? This is not how people think, but the police believed it. Most ridiculous story, really, yeah. I've ever heard, I think. I mean, so many things come up there. I mean, firstly, this second dead guy is claiming to have murdered um, Kavari, who has been listed as an accidental overdose death, so... There's no further investigation as to whether or not he was in any way, shape or form murdered. They well, continue to... uh, it's important to remember at this point that um, that the inquest hadn't happened. So so this was this was just before I joined uh, the Barking and Dagenham Post. Uh, the, the, these three murders happened. Now, when so, so the when I went to the inquest in 2015, the coroner came back and said, I can't, I can't rule the like. I can't rule Daniel's death as a suicide. It's, it's. You know, I'm not convinced it was a suicide. I can't rule out foul play. Now, the coroner is not a police officer. The coroner doesn't have all the tools of detection. What, what the coroner has is a bunch of witnesses and a bunch of sort of data about dead bodies, and she makes a decision based upon that. Like the, the likelihood is that they died of this. Now, even she could see that this was suspicious and weird, but she couldn't say that officially. She couldn't say the police need to investigate it because I, I'm not sure that that comes under her purview, to be honest. Maybe she could have been stronger, I don't know. But even she could see that this was there was something wrong here, as could journalists, as could mm-hmm. members of the gay community in, in Barking. Mm-hmm. 
Daniel Whitworth, the third victim, was actually wrapped up in a bed sheet, which is a peculiar thing maybe to do if you're going to uh, commit suicide and, uh, you know, agree that you had murdered somebody a month previous. The bed sheet wasn't um, forensically examined. Um, the writing, I think, at one point was shown to Whitworth's stepmother anyway, and possibly his father. They were just shown a portion of it. They said... They didn't really know was it his. They certainly weren't convinced it was his. And it was filed in the police report that they had confirmed it was his. So Yeah, the, the, mean, there, there are so many. I get so angry hearing about some of their interactions with the police, the, the victims' families, because we're, we're talking about... The, the, there's being incompetent and being stupid. And then there's just mm. outright mistreatment. You, you know, you should be going above and beyond for people who've just tragically lost a young man. And... and mm-hmm. What what really winds me up about this case, and it's the reason I wrote the book, is because I was I was I was essentially just really angry about it. What really winds me up is that the only people who have paid for the police's ineptitude are these grieving families. No police officer has been disciplined about this. No police officer has been sacked. Mm. Gabriel Cavani's landlord sort of became an amateur sleuth in all this because I think he wasn't really satisfied that he had committed suicide in a graveyard or had died of a drug overdose or whatever was suspected of him. And he did a little bit of digging himself. And when he saw that Daniel Whitworth's body had been discovered in the same graveyard just weeks later under the similar circumstances, um, I think he started to make some phone calls and started probing a little bit and maybe trying to speak up and say, there's something to see here. And again, he was pretty much ignored. Yeah. So, I mean, when 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 ordinary citizens who aren't, you know, journalists or police officers who, who don't have a lot of interaction with the police because they're relatively law abiding and they just keep their heads down sort of thing. When when these people spot things like this and people who are trained to do so do not, there's a problem. Now, when John Pape's ringing people up and, and trying to get answers, he runs into massive just 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 brick walls of, well, you're not next of kin. You know, you, this guy lived with you for a few weeks. And he was worried because as a friend of Gabriel's, he was like, well, why is someone hurting my friend? Am I in danger? Do you know what I mean? Like All these things are going through his head. The only thing in that situation if the police don't take you seriously, that ordinary people can do, is go to journalists. And when journalists then ring up the police and say, we think there's something wrong here, can you confirm or deny whether this is suspicious? And they turn around to you and say, it's not suspicious. You have the ridiculous situation where people who work in, you know, a, a, a very modest newsroom are trying to warn people who live in their area that something's wrong, but they can't do that because officially they'll be creating a panic. They'll, they'll, they'll be sat there going, there's something wrong, like watch out, and, and the police will go, it's not suspicious, and it'll, it'll worsen our relations with the police. They won't give us any information about anything to warn people about in the future. So it's just a vicious circle. What, what this process needs is everyone to do their job. Now, Gabriel's friend did his job. The families did their job chasing the police, which they shouldn't have even had to do. Um, journalists did their job. They, they started ringing around and like trying to get to the bottom of this, but the police just stonewalled it every time. And if that key institution isn't playing ball in this situation, it just screws everything up. So tell me about Jack Taylor, 25-year-old, and the final victim um, in these awful cases. What what happened to him and when, when did he meet his end? So Stephen Port went to prison for perverting the course of justice on a measly eight-month sentence considering that he'd at this point, murdered three people. He comes out 
of the sentence incredibly early. I think it might have been less than half, just under three months. Had he served his full sentence, he would not have been free to murder Jack Taylor. Jack Taylor's death in September 2015 was within the scope of what would have been Stephen Port's full sentence. So this is another reason to be angry, frustrated at the, at the police. The, the, because if he would have been arrested for murder, that would be the end of it. He got a light sentence, he didn't serve the sentence, he was out, he was able to murder Jack Taylor. He met Jack Taylor through... Jack was out drink, drinking in Romford, I believe, in East London, which isn't too far from Barking. And he made contact with Stephen uh, on, a, on a dating app, I believe, and he met Stephen at Barking Station... He walked home to Stephen's flat and then he turned up dead in St. Margaret's graveyard again. Well, not not exactly in St. Margaret's graveyard, actually. It was just on the other side of the wall on on a, a location called Abbey Green. Um, so he, he, he turns up. He's died of a drug overdose. It looks weird again and suspicious. He's not got his phone on him. All, all the same hallmarks are there. His clothes are dragged up. His, his sisters are baffled because they're like, well, Jack didn't take drugs. Even if he did take drugs, why would he take them in a graveyard? Well, you, you know, like, if, if he wanted to take drugs, he, he'd have friends or, or dealers even who he could, he could go around to the house and take it there. Why would you take it in a graveyard in autumn, in Barking? Do you know what I mean? It, it just doesn't make mm. any sense, any of it. So they're rightly confused. They also pointed out that, why would he sit down in the mud and the filth to do this when there's a bench over there? So they're straight away just like saying to the police, like, none of this makes sense. There's, we're worried there's something else going on here. The police tell them, no, it's not suspicious. They then start doing what John Pape was doing after Gabriel's death, which is just doing a bit of Googling. I mean, this is like rudimentary investigation. Just typing things into Google is something that everyone is capable of. So, that, so the, the police just didn't get this. So... Donna and Jen Taylor are searching for stuff in Barking and they find these other three deaths and they obviously say, well, these must be linked. Like, how how weird is it that four gay lads have been murdered in Barking within 400 yards, turn up dead, sorry, in Barking, within 400 yards of each other? That's very, very strange. So they start pressuring the police and saying, you know, they, they were up to like, like 4am, 5am some nights, like they just didn't sleep because they were just like trying to piece together everything about mm. Jack's final moments and how everyone else was linked to it. It turns out that there was CCTV footage of Jack walking with Stephen Port. Now, he was going through Barking Town Centre. If you go through Barking Town Centre and you turn right or head straight on, you, you come out at St. Margaret's Church, which is where Jack was found. The police lost the lost Jack on the CCTV after the town centre. So they were like, well, he obviously just, you know, walked to St. Margaret's. This mystery guy disappeared and they took drugs. So the, the Taylors are like, we, we don't buy that. So that they pressured them to release the CCTV footage within a day of the CCTV footage being put out there by a very reluctant, uh, impotent, sort of un incurious police force. It had been identified that the man in the clip was Stephen Port, the guy who they'd arrested before. Now, all they had to do in order to for, for, for Stephen Port to be a suspect in Jack Taylor's death, all they had to do was consider one question. What if Jack turned left instead of right? What if he went in the direction? And it is not a, it's not a long walk. I used to live in Barker. I know exactly where all this happened. 
what if he went in the direction of Cook Street, which is where that guy lives, where the other body turned up outside his flat and then lied to us about it. They, they didn't even get this after Jack's death. It's, it's absolutely mm. appalling and it's, it's just baffling to me. So when did they eventually start to focus on Stephen Port and when did they eventually launch these four murder investigations as opposed to filing them away as, you know, people, troubled people maybe who had taken drug overdoses or were suicidal? He was arrested, Stephen, in October 2015 and the only reason they ever saw the inside of a prison cell and a murder trial was because of the families pushing so hard that that BBC drama Four Lives, that that as far as I can tell is incredibly accurate. Like those families just did not give up. They were just not yeah. having it at all. Now, now that th- was on recently, I think in January, and it is on the BBC player, but we can't have access to that here. So hopefully they might show it again. I went to watch it myself there actually, and I'm blocked. Um, but yeah, so that drama was made, and um, but in the meantime, excuse me, I'm I'm interrupting you. The families pushed and pushed. These murder investigations were launched. Clearly, when they did launch it, the pieces came together fairly quickly. This wasn't really a huge murder mystery, was it? No, it's 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 summed up in that that fact I was just talking about that within a day he was identified. Like this, this could always have been done. This guy could have been identified. He was down the road. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not like this was a guy who was good at covering his tracks. He was so stupid that he implicated himself in the first death by calling 999. Who does that? He was so stupid that he mentioned himself in a suicide note. He was so stupid that he set, um, he, he set rumours in motion about the death of his second victim that were utterly implausible. He was, he was ridiculously incompetent. He should not have been able to kill. And that's why I call my book Easy Kills, because the police made it easy for him. This is a guy who shouldn't be able to tie his own shoelaces. He's one of the most stupid people with whom I've ever interacted. I wrote to him in prison. He's not a smart guy. He should not have been able to do this. But he must have something. I mean, there must be sort of two faces of of Stephen Port. He has this ability to come across as this with this childlike innocence. And yet there is that darkness when he gets somebody alone in his room. I, I don't think that his childlike innocence persona is an ability. I, th- I think I think it's more of a disability. I think that this is something that really hampers him um, in talking mm. to other people. What if you look at how Stephen met people? You know, he was an escort for years, so he was being paid to do it. Um, he was meeting people through social media, which is a lot less terrifying than speaking to going up to someone in a pub and being like, you know, you're fit. Can I buy you a drink? That that takes a bit of courage to do that. Stephen wasn't like that, and when he was in relationships, they were incredibly problematic. You know, he was he was in physical fights with his boyfriends. You know, the, the, he he was a completely dysfunctional person. It's not it, with Stephen Port. It's, it's not the case that he appeared to be sort of childlike and innocent as a ruse. That he 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 appeared childlike because he's he's a delinquent, frankly. He's he's incapable of of normal social interactions. He's not intelligent at all. He you know he can barely spell. He can barely sort of read and write. Um, and yeah, it's just it is just astounding to me that you know that this wasn't Pablo Escobar. This wasn't some like criminal mastermind. This this was somebody who 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 was only able to do this because of an incurious, incompetent uh, police force. And, and and that's why when when it when it came to, when it all came together when 
they actually arrested him that there was there was barely any case to investigate like i remember sitting in court like it, it all came together so quickly after that and then i was in court the next year at the old bailey and they read out 29 charges against the man and i was like when you throw when you throw that much mud some of it must stick <laughs> do you know what i mean 29 charges there was four for murder there were charges involving rape and poisoning uh with the the ghb and there was 11 victims identified during the trial and uh so there were others that he did get away with which weren't as obvious i mean there were survivors were did any of them give evidence or yeah the- hear from them yeah, no, you're right. There the, the were survivors and there the were things that he got away with that only came out when he was charged and prosecuted for murder. But the thing about those survivors is that, so, you know, one of them was, I've got to be careful about details that you that I give about these people because we're obviously not allowed to name them uh, because they're rape victims. But, you know, you had one guy who was a student who turned up at Stephen Port's flat told him he didn't want to do any drugs, was then drugged, and then was basically sexually assaulted by Stephen Port, one of his drug dealers, and the drug dealer's boyfriend, and was just so horrified about it. Now, when this lad told his um, told his bosses, you know, I'm really not feeling well today and I can't come in, they, they, they just treated him as though he was, like, making up an excuse. Like, he wasn't, he wasn't taken seriously. So when you've got a situation whereby you are utterly humiliated... In, in the in the worst way imaginable for for most people, and then you turn to people for help, and obviously they don't know that this has happened. But you you know you need someone to sort of pull you out of it and help you out. And and for whatever reason, this lad didn't get it. Another lad who went there, um, you know, he turned up, and Stephen Port was not what he expected uh, from the dark featured man on the dating app. He turned up. Stephen's hiding in the shadows. He goes into the room feels uh, a pinch, realises he's being drugged, leaps out of bed, turns the light on, sees Stephen and goes, who are you? And then, and then just legs it. So he didn't, he didn't think to do anything after that because he was like, well, I've, you know, I've got away with it. So what, what I'm saying is that with, with the victims who survived, you, you've got like, you've got a variety of reasons why they might not go to the police, including embarrassment and, you know, humiliation, which they shouldn't feel, but people do feel that when things like this happen. Um, None of them are to do with Stephen being sophisticated. I think that's huge in that, Sebastian, though, isn't it? We've seen that in other cases like this, not exactly serial killers, but in other cases that, you know, spring to mind that um, you have people going on dating apps, hooking up just for sex and, you know, finding themselves in these compromising positions. And if they get out of them, they seem to just want to park it and just move on. And that really... Um, you know, enables it enables people like Stephen Porsche to operate while he obviously wasn't the cleverest and the most cunning. He he operated for long enough to kill four people. But, you know, others have operated for a, a, an even longer period of time, you know, committing crimes like that because of the nature of of humans that they're, you know what I mean? They're too embarrassed to come forward and say what they were doing when, when they became a victim of crime. And the, 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 re, the reality is, is that, you know, I, I've met people who have been raped or sexually assaulted and I've always, I, I speak to them about, you know, um, what, you know, what, 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 what do you think you should do in that, in that situation afterwards? Because my perspective is always 
go to the police as soon as possible, get this person prosecuted, get them off the streets. Um, I, th I think rapists are the lowest of the low. So that's my perspective. But I have had it said to me by numerous rape victims, something along the lines of, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to leave it or I just want to move on and forget about it or, you know, maybe I'll go to counselling but I'm, I'm not going to get the police involved or it's been too long now that, that they won't prosecute it because there's no evidence. That there are so many things that, that come into play when you're thinking about, t like, going to court and, and this is before we've even got to testifying and talking about mm. one of the most upsetting moments of your life in front of complete strangers, you know, and it, and it is a real shame. I don't, I don't know how you fix it other than to say... And I think we have, um, I think we've really got there as a as as a as a society. I, I think that you know rapists now are really reviled and rightly so. And I don't mm. think there's any in the in the head of any right thing right thinking or normal individual in Britain nowadays. And I'm, I'm, I'm I hope Ireland as well. I don't think there's anyone who looks at a, a rape victim as as the problem as opposed to the rapist. And if if there is, then. <laughs> They're, they're, they're living in, in, in a morally disgusting universe that I don't want to be a part of. Um, since his, his uh, sentencing, very hefty sentencing, uh, a couple of things have popped up and maybe you could just, you know, we could, we could see where we're at now with it. Yeah. Um, I noticed somewhere they were re-examining 58 unsolved deaths to see had he any links to any, maybe he has, there are still cases being, you know, investigated, seeing as he links to. Also, I found it very interesting that his GHB supplier, Gerald Matavu, was obviously a like-thinking guy who was also using the drug for um, that reason and I think was convicted of a, a murder himself. That's incredible coincidence. He murdered a dad called um, Eric Michels. Him and his boyfriend uh, went round to his house and... Uh, drugged him. He ended up dying. You know they robbed him. Uh, but yeah, these 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 guys were they weren't exactly the same as Stephen Port, but it was it was a similar kind of problem. It it, it was it was basically using they were still drugs. using the drug to yeah, to yeah. you know to to make people more vulnerable. Um, what about any further? Is there any suggestion that he's linked to any other murders? Not that I know of, but I, I, I've no idea what's being investigated behind the scenes, if that makes sense. I did speak to somebody while I was writing the book who was uh, heavily involved in the legal side of the case, and they didn't mention anything about that side of things. And I think that they probably would have done if it was going any further. Um, you've got to remember when the Stephen Port thing happened, the, when he finally got arrested, the police had been caught with their trousers down. You know, they, they, they like stood there going, we are so to blame for this. And now we've got to investigate every single aspect of this sort of thing. So he was arrested for four murders, but he was done for a lot more. Do you know what I mean? And they had all these other deaths where they were like, well, if we were stupid enough to miss these deaths, then maybe these other deaths we've also, we, our police officers have also missed them. As far as I know, um, and you've got to be careful as well, when, when they say um, in the press, uh, you know, 58 deaths, um, could be linked to Stephen Paul. Well, what does linked mean? You, you, does this well, just mean... To, I, just, I just noticed that they were re-examining them. I suppose that is part of yeah. the overall uh, investigation to make sure they've everything. Now, the Metropolitan Police haven't accepted blame and uh, an investigation has identified possibly 17 police officers. But I don't think any disciplinary action has been taken. And there is a civil civil proceedings in, in, um, in play and they're not accepting 
blame for any of this. So that's their position on it. But, um, you know, in general, do you feel that there was kind of, there was a, a, a an actual, that this was an organised attempt to just turn a blind eye? Or do you think this was pure incompetence and possibly an element of groupthink comes into play, especially in policing? I think I, th- I think there were a few things going on here. I think that when when you look at a case like this that causes this much anger and hurt, I think that it's very easy to latch onto one aspect of it and, and say, you know, all, all of the officers were like this. I think I think it's more complicated than that, which which is less satisfying because it would be nice to have a soundbite. But basically, I think that um, I think there was some homophobia, definitely. Um, I don't think it was the case because I don't have evidence for this that the police officers just didn't like gay people or didn't care about gay people. I think what they did was they looked at a scenario which was obviously suspicious, a scenario that was easily diagnosable to anyone remotely connected with the case including grieving family members. And they instead bought into a narrative about the kind of gay people that were lying dead at their feet. It was, oh, these are those kind of gay people who are like out all night in Soho taking loads of drugs. You know, that's that's why they've died. Now, it's not that there aren't gay people like that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Who go on big nights out and take risks. But when you're looking at somebody where all the evidence is pointing against that sort of character, against that personality, and you're saying, yeah, that's what happened. You are saying that because they're gay, and that's homophobic. So there was that side of it. I think there's a class uh, differential that doesn't get spoken about a lot with, with, with this. You know, Barking is a, a, it's a very working-class area. Uh, it can be pretty rough at times. I lived there for a good while, and it was, you know, there were nights when I came out of the pub and, someone was covered in blood at my feet, you know, there were nights where you'd be walking to Asda and a lad gets stabbed next to you. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty dangerous place. And I think that the combination of poverty and the combination of the general danger that people feel there, when someone turns up dead, it's not as shocking as it should be. It's really not. Now, that's understandable from a member of the public, but when you're a copper, that, that's no excuse. It doesn't matter if a body turns up in Barking or Mayfair. It doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if they're gay or straight. You investigate if it looks suspicious. End of discussion. So I think, yeah, I think there was a bit of a class thing. I think the fact they were men, as well as the fact of them being gay, I think that, you know, there are many good reasons why, as a society, we, uh, you know, expect men to be able to sort of weather more physical danger than women. You know, there are things sort of bred into us um, that that make that sort of plausible when you see a bloke in a fight as opposed to a woman getting punched in the face by a bloke. Uh, one is definitely worse and more shocking than the other. So I think that when a man turns up dead, it's a bit less shocking than when a woman turns up dead in a nice area. But these are these are sort of these are sort of prejudices um, that are understandable if you're walking past the scene. They're not understandable if it's your job to investigate deaths without fear or favour. Do you know what I mean? Like they they, they should be able to override that mechanism in their brain that I might have or you might have and they should be able to go, well, it's irrelevant. I'm, I'm, here, I'm here to do a job. And they didn't. I think really that's probably the least we should expect from policing forces across the world. 100%. Uh, Sebastian Murphy Bates, thank you very much. And your book, Easy Kills, is published by Mirror Books and available in shops nationwide. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney. 
and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.